The following program is paid for by Dr. Marianne Ritchie. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Dr. Marianne Ritchie or her guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. Medicare's highest for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter in odyssey station it's time for the delaware valley's first radio doctor on call every saturday afternoon at five this is your radio doctor with dr marianne ritchie presented exclusively by independence blue cross listen seven months or ten months is an absolutely exceptional exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good evening and welcome to your radio doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. When it comes to depression, many people think of it as an adult problem, but children, especially adolescents, commonly suffer from depression. Numbers have markedly increased in recent years, well before onset of the pandemic. Then add the COVID with the trauma of the illness, loss of family members, challenges of remote learning, and the sadness of isolation. Unfortunately, depression can look different in children and adolescents, so parents don't always recognize the problem, and depression is a treatable condition. Our guest this evening is Dr. Jennifer Havens, the Arnold Simon Professor and Chair of the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine and the Director of Child and Adolescent Behavioral Health at New York City Health and Hospitals. Prior to 2018, Dr. Havens was the Director of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Bellevue Hospital Center, which is New York City's most comprehensive mental health services for children and adolescents. She opened the state's only dedicated children's psychiatric emergency program expanded the inpatient service to 45 beds, then opened the city's only partial hospital program. She's been active in public psychiatry innovation since the 1990s and pioneered the first mental health clinic serving children and families affected with HIV. Prior to 2018, she was director of child and adolescent psychiatry at Bellevue Hospital Center, which has New York City's most comprehensive mental health services for children and adolescents where she opened the state's only dedicated psychiatric emergency program, expanded the inpatient service to 45 beds, then opened the city's only partial hospital program. She's been active in public psychiatry innovation since the 1990s, pioneered the first mental health clinic serving children and families affected by HIV. She leads the initiative providing mental health to New York City's juvenile detention sites, and she's active in many of New York State's major Child Mental Health Initiatives. Welcome, Jennifer. It's wonderful to have you with us tonight. Great to be here. 
So Jennifer, the prevalence of depression in children as and adolescents has markedly increased in recent years. For instance, in teenagers, Pew Research Center looks at data from the National Survey on Drug Use and Health and reports a notable rise between 2007 and 2017, as we said, long before the onset of COVID, uh, COVID pandemic. What are the most common drivers? Well, I don't think we really know, Marianne. It's a great question. Um, you know, both depression and suicide have been systematically increasing over the last 20 years, I would say. Part of it is better recognition. You know, we've, we've learned a lot in child and adolescent psychiatry and understand the trajectory of mental illness better than we, you know, in, in 30 years ago, we said kids couldn't be depressed because they didn't have the ego structure. And we know that's just nonsense. Uh, but, you know, the world's gotten to be a much, and now here I'm speculating, the world's gotten to be a much more complicated place. Kids have much more access to information. In my opinion, in my clinical experience, everything, including puberty, is moving younger. Um, so over the course of the 11 years I was at Bellevue running the inpatient service, you know, we saw sicker and sicker kids early and earlier. And right now, uh, you know, the world's a pretty gloomy place for kids. If you think about COVID and you think about climate change and you think about how some of our adults are behaving in the world. Uh, but there's no, there's, no, there's no clear scientific answer to that question. But mm -hmm. it's real. And as you say, uh, I guess there's a loss of innocence across the country as well. If children are aware of adult life issues long before we were uh, when we were growing up. And, and you are your childhood. We had a long discussion, you and I, the other day about the influences in your childhood that stay with you that you don't even realize sometimes as an adult. So, and so with that in mind, would you say that the incidence of depression um, is influenced by gender, culture, race, socioeconomic background? I'm sure all those puzzle pieces. All those things, um genetics, a strong comp uh, genetic component to depression and anxiety disorders. In other words, they run in families. Stress, you know, um, a really important driver of depression, anxiety in kids, adolescents, and adults is early childhood adverse experience. So abuse and neglect, particularly if it's in the early childhood period and chronic, and um, we know that's associated with a lot of problems in the psychiatric realm and also the substance abuse realm and also the health realm as people age. Um, so though, you know, the, so there, it, it's, it's hard to sort out nature from nurture, but they're both involved. Mm -hmm. But I mean, when you think about it, I look back and I, I was jokingly said that middle school is the boot camp for life because you get there and people, <laughs> some people have developed physically. So are they the cool kids? Cause they're the girls wearing lipstick first or, or are mm -hmm. they, or do they freeze at that point and that's the peak in their lives? That's their identity, mm -hmm. that they were cool. And you go back to your high school reading and they're still sort of the cool kids. But I mean, knowing that kids have always gone through both. Everybody thinks they had a hard time at some point in school. Well, but let me just say, being a kid is hard. Yes. You know, we adults think of it as a, 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 an easier time because we're taking care of the kids. But there are a lot of challenges for kids. Um, all through the lifespan, middle school is a particularly complicated time with, uh, and now it's, as I said, it's starting at 10 with puberty. Mm -hmm. So, and what's, what's different today is things like bullying, 
you know, are much more effective over the internet. And, and that's a major driver of kids' mental health problems too, and kids' suicide, we know that. So, I mean, I'm not bashing the internet. No, think, you're saying that life is a balance and it has good yeah. points and negative points. And, what, mm-hmm. I'm, what I'm thinking, what I was leading to, I was driving here today thinking, when I have a patient and I, and I have to tell them, I mean, they may have seen me once for a routine colonoscopy and I say, we found colon cancer. They're gonna, in most cases, they're gonna be depressed, at least initially, and we call that reactive depression or appropriate. Or not even, I mean, we'll talk about depression in the next segment, but, you know, people have sad feelings about things okay. all the time. Yes. Yeah. And, and you know, we're, but their depression is when those sad feelings are, number one, much more persistent than, you know, in duration and number two, impairing. So we'll talk about in the next segment, but it, depression isn't being sad. Depression is being really sad and having it affect your function. Right. And I think that's what I wanted to clarify for our listeners. Cause people say, Oh, he's really depressed. He just heard something. But if the person takes the problem, whatever it is, a family member dies, uh, their house burns down, whatever it is, they lose their job. It's the matter of coping. And are they able to move on? I guess this is mm-hmm. the distinction. Mm-hmm. So, um, mm-hmm. because I think people throw these, terms around loosely and they can be misconstrued. So we'll go into what defines depression per se. But as you say, it's definitely cyberbullying. You if you see a child that's pushed in the schoolyard and you're a teacher, okay, you know it's happening. But if somebody gets a text or an email and you don't know, or some creepy crawler out there is, you know, leaking into your child's world, it's it's terrifying and they might not know to tell you. And even cell phone uh, problematic use in itself. It might not be bullying, but the child's distracted or teenager and, and all those good things. Would you say that uh, girls are more likely to face depression than boys? Yes, that's generally the trend that the girls are more likely to be diagnosed with depression. Sometimes I think boys are missed because they present with more irritability and aggression. That's a generalization, but and then in my experience, particularly in traumatized boys, that they are depressed when you scratch that surface. But it, it is there is always been more gender representation in girls than boys with this, this particular disorder. And I guess, too, some of the things that are um, more exaggerated in today's culture, because it's shown on the Internet, is excelling and getting in not to college, but the right college. And adding to that, you have to have so many extracurriculars and and a service and all those things are good, but not everybody's meant to fit into a certain pigeonhole. And, and it's, right. it's just and, so- And, and mm-hmm. if you look at something like Instagram or TikTok, you know, where there's, it's so much easier to compare yourself to everybody else and find yourself wanting. Yes, and how many likes you get, Mary Smith got 50 and you only got 20 and, it, and it's so mm-hmm. hard on kids. And, and it's really subliminal because they might not even understand that. I want to start with a question that we can take into the next segment. We have about a minute now, but do anything, uh, do any of issues during before, during, or after pregnancy influence that baby's risk for depression? Absolutely. We have some really interesting science coming along, looking at stress during pregnancy. I was just uh, listening to someone talking about smoking during pregnancy um, and, and the whole, the whole environment, and there's, in, there's, there's data that the Dutch famine uh, caused depression and health effects in two generations down. So, um, yes, stress and stress during pregnancy and exposures during pregnancy can predispose kids to problems as can exposure to domestic violence. Sure. In that period. 
Sure. How about premature delivery? Does that affect or influence? Um, that, that tends to be associated more with neurodevelopmental outcomes like ADHD. Um, we're, we're looking more at the stress trauma axis around depression and anxiety um, and, and some uh, tobacco and alcohol in particular exposures. Um, you, you know, in the ideal world, a pregnant woman is healthy. And today I was hearing about sleep today. Sleep during pregnancy can affect some of these outcomes, particularly ADHD. So, um, but who, who, which one of us lives in the ideal world? Exactly. Let's mm-hmm. take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Jennifer Havens. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Hi, I'm Dr. Denny Carice, Chief Science Officer at Recovery Centers of America, and I'm here as your addiction expert. People ask me often about harm reduction efforts. What are harm reduction efforts? These are any kind of effort that's made to keep somebody and to keep society safe while somebody is not ready to quit using drugs or alcohol. So it's not something where we say it's okay to keep using or we encourage use, but it is something where we help keep people safe while they're not ready to quit. So one example of this would be needle exchange programs. If somebody's injecting heroin and they do not want to quit, needle exchange programs allow them to bring in used needles and they give them clean needles. This does a lot of things, not just for the person, but society. It decreases the number of dirty needles you see laying outside when you walk outside on your front step. It also keeps the person safe from things like HIV, hepatitis, AIDS, so that there's not the seroconversion to those illnesses that then become a burden on the person and on society. So harm reduction efforts wanna keep the person safe And here's another piece. I've never known a harm reduction place where they don't offer treatment when the person comes in. They say, I know you're here for your needles. You know, there's treatment available. I could could link you up with this place or that. And then also a lot of harm reduction places, they have access to nurses or physicians where they can get some medical treatment while they're there. So if people are not willing and not ready to quit, let's at least keep society safer and keep them safer until we can show them that quitting is a great idea and they have a life ahead of them without drugs and alcohol. If you or a loved one has a problem with alcohol or drugs, call 1-888-RECOVERY today or go to recoverycentersofamerica.com. We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7. That number again is 1-888-RECOVERY. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. In excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction, you are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Devon and Lighthouse, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now when we ask questions we make sure they're the big ones 
Like how can the healthcare industry earn the trust of patients? And what if your health outcomes and access to care weren't defined by your skin color, sexuality, gender, or zip code? At Genentech, we're removing barriers and partnering across the medical community to make clinical research as diverse as the world we serve to ensure communities have access to healthcare. Learn how we are working to make healthcare more equitable at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. And we're back on your radio doctor with Dr. Jennifer Havens discussing depression in children and adolescents. Jennifer, I wanted to ask quickly, we were talking about the... Um, issues during and well before during and after pregnancy that can influence that child when he or she is born and later in life um obviously if the mom had was exposed to environmental toxins or maybe even if the mom had depression that would be a genetic carryover anyway we talked about nurture and nature mm -hmm. but or or, or or a biological carryover because stuff happens to the body and the and the brain. Right, and you figure if the mom had pneumonia or is, yeah. uh, you know a drop in their oxygen yeah. levels, it would affect the baby. What about cannabis? I read articles all the time. In my office, we see people use uh, who have hyperemesis, just like hyperemesis gravidarium mm -hmm. for people who are pregnant and get and vomit a lot. Try not to use that word, mm -hmm. but um, that people get terrible belly pain, and we have to do. Is it appendicitis? Do they have Crohn's disease? We have to do all kinds of studies mm -hmm. and it's all normal, but it ends up being that the cannabis slows their motility. So you put a deposit in, you put half a sandwich in and it doesn't move forward and they get excruciating pain and sick. Does cannabis seem to be causing an increase in depression in general? Um, I think the jury's out on that um, because we now we have the opportunity that cannabis is legal to study it more carefully. Um, and, you know, many more people are going to be smoking marijuana because it's legal. But I, 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 I that's, you know, when we, when I'm dealing with kids who are smoking, you never tell a teenager not to take drugs. You tell a teenager to, to do harm reduction because if you tell them to stop taking drugs, they don't listen to you. So, yeah. So what you really want to do is to get people to reduce their use as much as possible, particularly if it's impairing their sure. functioning. But we are beginning to study cannabis use during the pregnancy period, and we will have better understanding of what maybe. I mean, the complicated things about the complicated things about studying substance use during pregnancy is it's not a random population. People who use drugs during pregnancy tend to have a lot of other problems in their lives that are also associated with neurodevelopmental outcomes mm -hmm. in their kids, like their own histories of abuse and stress. So it's complicated. There's a huge NIH study that's just rolling out that's going to study the first 10 years of life starting in pregnancy and look at some of these questions. But it's a very hard yeah. thing but to But I was thinking, I meant hyper, I mean, um, depression in children as they use, as they have access to marijuana. That's kind of, or, or cannabis. Yeah. I mean, the party line is it's not good to smoke marijuana if you have depression, but I also know a lot of traumatized kids who smoke marijuana because it helps them yeah, function yeah. better. Yeah. They and the feel whole better. scoop is, I guess, so, too, if you're, if somebody's prescribing it for them, then it's uh, regulated, but kids or people in general, I mean, I talk to my patient all the time and I say, where do you get the cannabis? I have a friend and I yep. say, listen, do you think that guy on the street corner loves you like your mother loves you? Do you think they're going to make sure it's pure and, and safe for you? One on the X day, please think 
really hard before you do that. And if you need it, get your mom to take you to the doctor or go to the, but you know, we're saying the same message. Yeah. We're not, we're not generally, we're, yeah, we're not generally prescribing marijuana. No, not you, but I mean, if they have pain or for some other reason they're on it um, or have access to it. Well, we got, you know, there's, we got five years. We'll know a lot more Mm because we can study it now. So I guess the big question for our listeners is what are the red flags? How does one, a parent, a teacher, how do they recognize depression Mm -hmm. in a child an adolescent, do they look different in a child and an adolescent? And, um, you know, what's the best? So, so let's, so let's, first, let's go back to what we were talking about in the last segment, Marianne. So when we diagnose a kid with major depressive disorder, which is, you know, serious depression, there's several things that are going to that. And it's a clinical diagnosis. There's no test or imaging. It's from talking to the kid and family about their symptoms. And there are a few things that are important. The, first, the two first questions you ask a kid, you know, have you felt sad most of the time every day for more than two weeks? Or very, uh, very common with teenagers, have you been lost interest in things that you used to like to do? Kids often say they're bored. And, and again, there's durational criteria. It's not two days. It's not three days. It's two weeks or more. And then there's a bunch of other symptoms you ask about sleep and appetite changes, which can go in either direction and can happen with depression, concentration, um, feelings of hopelessness, suicidal ideation, very important to ask about that because that's also very common in our kids. And putting that all together, then you make a diagnosis of major depression. As we were saying before, if somebody's boyfriend breaks up with them and they're sad for a couple of days, that's not depression. And you have to have impairment in functioning. So that's that's the red that that's where the red flags come in. If you see your kids aren't doing the things they used to do, when we used to pay for our phone lines, that would take, tell parents if your phone bill goes down. Good point. <laughs> right, you know, because the kid is less yep. engaged, right, um, and, and their school function is affected, their peer relations are affected. Sometimes kids aren't sad and mopey. Sometimes mm. they're irritable, and and more fighting in the home. Um, so, you know, parents, teachers are, if they're tuned in, teachers are yes. really good at this because teachers are like occupational therapists. They need to make the kid use their brain to learn. And when you're, when you're not in a good place with depression, it's very hard to concentrate and learn. So it's really changes that you see in your child. Um, and it can, the, the, the tricky thing about it is it can be quite insidious. Sure. It's not like one day your kid's totally different. It's like sneaks up, and and for people who are actually experiencing depression, it's like the whole your whole perspective changes. It's like you're seeing things through like a gray filter, and it creeps up on you, and you don't know, and you can't talk yourself out of it. You know, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. But I guess you answered um, my question. I was going to say, does depression look different to a parent uh, versus a teacher? But either person, either guardian, or either adult is going to hopefully notice changes, even if they're subtle over time. Changes. And changes in mood. And again, it can be depression and anxiety are considered internalizing disorders, uh, i.e. they're inside of you. But you can have kids who also have externalizing symptoms when they're depressed and angry. Um, And anger is also often, for the kids I've, a lot of kids I've worked with who've been really 
well, traumatized. You know, they're yeah. angry. Yeah. Too. Yes. For good reason. And I, I, I was thinking the other day as well when I was putting my questions together, how do teachers approach the the top the subject how do they notify the principal and the school nurse first do they reach out to the parents or guardian how does that work it it depends it depends on you know every school is its own system but generally I'm, I'm talking sure. about New York City where I live you know there there are committees that meet and talk about of school personnel that talk about kids who are having problems together if parents have a relationship with a, a teacher teachers will call a parent and say, I'm worried about your kid. They're not, they're not functioning at the level that they did before. Teachers are not supposed to diagnose kids, but they are in a very, very unique position to, to comment on these kinds of changes. And that's what, that was one of the challenges with COVID mm. is, you know, if you're watching kids in your classroom and you see a kid you're worried about, you know, you can take them aside and talk to them. They couldn't do that when they were remote. So many difficult issues came with the remote learning. So I thought the other question was, um, I would guess there's sometimes a delay in identifying and then treating because are, are some parents uncomfortable with asking a child or an adolescent, I guess, about depression for fear that, or are they afraid to say, have you had suicidal thoughts? Because they think it might put the thought into yep. the child or adolescent's head. Yeah. Yep. And, and there's a lot of, you know, stigma about mental illness because it's, because it's not a physical thing. People think it's not real. There are cultural, um, you know, cultural differences in how people think about this. Um, some cultures really don't really don't accept this as a concept. So it, it, there's a lot of reasons. I think we're, I think we're making some progress in this so. area because, I mean, 9-11 had a big impact on our understanding of PTSD. Firemen mm. could get it. Mm. I can get it. And, you know, the obvious crisis we're having now with so many kids struggling with both anxiety and depression, hopefully that'll move the needle. Because as you said before, we can help kids. And there's usually a very long time from diagnosis to treatment if they even, like only half of kids ever get treatment. And the thing is too, Jennifer, so, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but going back to parents and a maybe being afraid to broach the subject because they don't want to give their child ideas. But do you think there are parents out there who don't want to see it on the child's record, so they don't want their child labeled as such? Yes, yes. There's that's that. There's there's stigma about that too. It's just, it's an issue we face all the time when we really think it's important for a kid to take psychiatric medications. And the parents are like, no, my kid can't take psychiatric medications. I'm like, you give your kid medical medications right. all the time. What what right. is the problem? So uh, this is this is this is a challenge, and it's a dangerous challenge because, you know, the one of the major, really problematic uh, outcomes of de serious depression is suicide. And you know that if you you don't want to miss exactly, that. and you thinking that you sweep it under the rug that this will pass, maybe it won't. And it's really right. And like one in one in five kids thinks about suicide. This, wow. this is the, the data from community samples, not clinical samples. It's 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 relatively normative. It's also been glamorized in the media. Remember, thirteen reasons why. You know, it's the work that was terrible when that show came out. What we saw around the country with the uh, you know kids coming to EDs. Um, imitating that show. So, but you, if you're asking a kid, are you okay? How are you feeling? Can you do what you need to do? 
Have you thought about, I see you're sad. Have you thought about hurting yourself? That's not going to put that in that. It's either there or it's not. And the kids are, yeah. And the kids are talking to each other about this stuff. The kids are much further Mm. ahead than we are. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with more on teen and child depression. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. This is Emily Rubin, registered dietitian with Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Thomas Jefferson University Celiac Center and the PR chair for the Academy of Philadelphia and Dietetic Association presenting you with your tip of the week. So May is Celiac Awareness Month. So I thought it was a perfect time to discuss celiac disease, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, and the gluten-free diet. Celiac disease, sometimes it's actually called celiac sprue or gluten-sensitive enteropathy. It's actually an immune reaction to eating gluten, a protein that's found in wheat, rye, and barley. And if you have celiac disease, eating gluten triggers this immune response in your small intestine. And over time, the reaction damages your small intestine's lining and prevents it from absorbing certain nutrients. This intestinal damage often can cause diarrhea, fatigue, weight loss, bloating, anemia, and other serious complications. Since there's no cure for the disease, only treatment is for people or my patients to follow a strict gluten-free diet, and that will help reverse the disease and also manage the symptoms symptoms and promote intestinal healing. That being said, there's another condition called non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is characterized by intestinal or extraintestinal symptoms that we just discussed, the diarrhea, fatigue, weight loss, related to the ingestion of gluten containing foods, but there's no celiac disease or wheat allergy. So again, the treatment is the same, which is a gluten-free diet. What happens is you will then see your gastroenterologist and they may hand you a diet that may say, again, just to avoid wheat, rye, and barley. And you start thinking, okay, well, I can't eat bread, pasta, baked goods, pizza, but only if the diet was that easy. There's so many other products that are hidden with sneaky gluten. This is because every trace amount of gluten is enough to cause distress to those with celiac disease and non-celiac gluten sensitivity. Eating as little as one hundredth of a piece of bread can cause harm to the intestine. Every crumb counts. So the crumb that's in that toaster or on the counter is enough to either damage your small intestine or cause GI symptoms. This is Emily Rubin, dietitian, wrapping up your nutrition tip of the week. Next week, we will continue with the gluten-free diet. For more information, you can log on to yourradiodoctor.com. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When you have orthopedic issues, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes orthopedics. You need an exceptionally specialized Rothman orthopedics physician. 
They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. That's RothmanOrtho.com. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Devon and Lighthouse, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY. Now, When we ask questions, we make sure they're the big ones. Like when it comes to diseases, can we strive to treat, prevent, and even reverse them? And how can we make healthcare more effective and more affordable? These are the types of questions that can help impact the lives of so many patients, that help push the boundaries of innovation and healthcare for all communities. At Genentech, we are the pioneers of the biotech industry, tackling some of the biggest questions in healthcare. Learn more at gene.com slash askbiggerquestions. And as we continue our discussion about depression in children and adolescents, we're here with Dr. Jennifer Havens. Jennifer, we were talking about uh, the unfortunate uh, continuation of suicide being glamorized and then normalized with um movies and and even youtube videos on how to how to hang yourself how to it's uh it's pretty terrifying terrible it's terrible and um the hanging videos are very problematic because they have you know kids showing other kids how to tie nooses and the problem with hanging yourself is if you do it right it works Hmm. so you know like historically girls have taken more overdoses in America. There's difference, cultural differences, method choice. And boys have done things like shoot, hang, and jump in front of, out of buildings. And that's one of the reasons girls make more attempts historically, but boys die more when they make attempts. Now with the sort of proliferation of hanging, it's very impactful in terms of the outcome. It's It's pretty hard to kill yourself with pills these days. Um, you know, we've taken a lot of the pills off the market that used to be quite effective at that. So it's, 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 um, and there is a real contagion to it with kids. That's, that's, that is true. Um, so, uh, it's an uphill battle. We need the, we need the tech companies to help us to keep kids healthy. And that's a fight, uh, cause the stuff is very dramatic and it draws a lot of people in. Um, but you know, you want, you want to know about these thoughts in your own child before they go down that road. So oh, you can sure. do something different. Yeah. I want to backpedal here a little bit because you mentioned anxiety. How do you distinguish anxiety from depression? And is one more common in children and adolescents more likely right. to have depression perhaps? Well, anxiety is one of the most prominent, um, disorders in children. The the U.S. Task Force on Prevention just changed the guidelines to recommend screening for anxiety down to age eight. There's not evidence for screening for depression down to age eight. We're now screening for depression over age 12. Um, Wow. And anxiety is is 
what it sounds like anxiety and it it's not a mood it's not a mood thing they're often comorbid they often come together and there's a lot of overlap but you can have an anxiety disorder like social anxiety disorder kids who don't want to go to school and can't eat in front of other people and can't talk in the classroom you know without having the kind of mood symptoms you have with major depression and and we're talking doom and gloom but remember most kids are resilient you know, and most kids do really well with stress, but there is a subset of kids that really do struggle. Um, and again, we need to find those kids. And I, I guess there's no answer to this uh, question. How often does depression lead to suicide? Because it's so broad. And I, and I think sometimes when you hear that a young person dies, it was probably an accidental overdose, right? You know, if they uh, well, got number, a sample not- with car fentanyl in it or something. Number one cause of death, 10 to 24, is accidents and accidental death. Some of those are suicides. And number two is now suicide, which mm. is which is appalling. I mean, more kids die of suicide than anything else because wow. they're healthy kids yes. pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, you know, th- that's, you know, this is something that we, from my perspective as a child psychiatrist, this is like a public health crisis. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Absolutely. and we have, we have kids sitting in ERs all over the country with nowhere to go. There are not enough beds. There are not enough outpatient services for kids. We don't identify kids early enough. Now, there's a big push in pediatrics to do more mental health assessment. You know, when you take your kid to the doctor, the pediatrician every year, they get this little growth chart, you know, that their height and their weight. And it tells you, is your kid within a normal range? We should be doing that for behavioral and emotional symptoms also. Because you can, if you ask the right questions, kids will tell you. Sure. And it's because of people like you that are thinking ahead and the great work you've done. I'm hearing of um, my daughter is in a family medicine uh, residency. Mm -hmm. And now more pediatricians offices and some family medicine offices are, am I right, are bringing in a therapist or, or somebody yep, who's yep. there in place. Hallelujah. Yes. Yep. And we're, do, we're doing work in the public hospital system in New York, really, where we're looking at psychosocial and social determinants of health in pregnant women and very young children and trying to intervene there. Because I think if we took care of families who are really high risk early in life, we could actually prevent some mental illness. Sure. Yeah. And so you make the diagnosis in a child or an adolescent. How do you approach therapy? I'm sh- what's the first line of therapy? Okay. So the, this is the, the, the kind of, you've talked about algorithms. For kids that have mild to moderate depression, we usually start with psychotherapies. So parents that are worried about medication, if your kid isn't really sick and isn't at risk for hurting themselves, pretty often you're going to get rec- recommended a therapy. Uh, and they're a couple of really good evidence-based therapies that, that by evidence-based, I mean they've been shown to work in randomized clinical trials over and over again. Some, there's a great treatment called interpersonal psychotherapy, uh, cognitive behavior, behavioral uh, therapy for depression and anxiety are quite effective. And that's, if you're not too ill, that's the first line usually. Um, and for kids who, you know, when I was working at the hospital, kids would come to the hospital who were, had tried or were going to try to hurt themselves and were hopeless and helpless. And those kids we would often use antidepressant medication on, which is quite effective for kids too. So, um, but again, the first line is 
psychotherapy if it's mild to moderate and you use medication when you need to and the medications are very useful mm-hmm. they don't work for everybody but they're very useful we could we always need more more treatments but we've we've got good stuff that we didn't have 20 or 30 years ago well and i think knowing that as you emphasize the stigma we hope we're we're getting away from that and people are going to be more open and realize just like they do random drugs uh, testing in um, high schools now. And there mm-hmm. are parents who objected. I don't want my child's record. And you're like, but what if it saves his or her life? What if, you know, you still have your son a month from now because he was, right. uh, you know, held accountable for having this or that in his sample. Um, so um, when you have a child or an adolescent, can you make much progress without interviewing other family members? I would think that that has to be part of the picture as well. Siblings oh, or close parents. Yeah. So yeah, you can't, you can't, you know, I don't believe in treating children outside the context of right. their families. I mean, there, I mean, and the, and the younger the child, the more true that is all the work we do with young children, parents is dyadic. Um, uh, so, but, you know, as a kid gets older, obviously, they need their privacy. Sure. Right. So, you know, and that's all that's often tricky working with the adolescents. It's like, I am going to talk to your parents. I'm not going to tell them anything you told me. If you tell me something that is where I'm worried about your safety, I will. But, you know, you this is a safe relationship here. Um, uh, but, you know, your family has to know how you're doing and they have the right to know. Um, you know, sometimes kids, and we're not really technically allowed to treat anybody under 18 if we don't talk to their parents. Sometimes you have to, because there's Mm -hmm. risk associated with telling their parents, but this is a family affair. Yes. Because how can you understand why a child is nervous or shy or, or angry unless you know the whole chessboard? Well, yeah. And like for the cognitive behavioral therapies, both for depression and anxiety, they have homework, you know, and the family needs to be involved and reinforce that. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, almost all parents, what they want is for their kid to be well, and they need to know what's going on. Absolutely. You know, so, yeah. yeah. You, because they, if they didn't recognize it and the teacher found it and maybe it's something very adjustable and the parent says, Oh my gosh, I didn't realize that was such a source of anxiety or, Right. And uh, mm-hmm. especially if their child already has another issue, say ADHD, and they're blaming mm-hmm. everything on that, this might be another layer that's, mm-hmm. as you say, treatable, treatable, treatable. So mm-hmm. what symptoms that a, a young person expresses or signs that are noticed would cause the need for the emergency department? And part B of that is when would a child or teen be admitted for inpatient therapy? Yeah, unfortunately, the only real way to get immediate access to evaluation, and it isn't even necessarily good evaluation, we have a child psych emergency room, as you mentioned in the intro at Bellevue, that's just for kids with a lot of specialization. But if a kid is at, in danger in terms of harming themselves or harming other people, um, that you need to have an evaluation. And we take suicide very seriously. Sure. You know, so um, hopefully you can get it before it gets to that point. And, and a good clinician who's in the community can assess a kid who's having, we, you know, we do 
safety assessments. You know, you might be thinking about suicide, but you're not actually really seriously going to do it. And we can not send you to the ED. It's terrible that the only place we can send kids is the ED. But when a kid comes to the hospital and we admit them, it's because they're not safe in the community. Unfortunately, Marianne, one of the problems we have is a lot of kids get admitted to the hospital because they need to be treated immediately, not because they need that level of treatment. The, the child mental health system is so limited and particularly now so saturated that you could wait weeks to months to get an appointment. Oh, the disgrace. It is it is heartbreaking, but people like you are working so hard and changing minds as well as changing lives. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back for our wrap up with Dr. Jennifer Havens. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When you have joint pain, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes joints. Someone so focused on their specialty, they've written the book on it, literally. You need an exceptionally specialized physician from Rothman Orthopedics. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past the pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at rothmanortho.com. Official orthopedic partner of the Eagles, Phillies, and Sixers. Now, your weekly prescription brought to you by Genentech, the science-driven company that pioneered the biotech industry to transform how we treat the world's most complex health problems. And in our final segment of Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Jennifer Havens, thank you for all your wisdom that you've shared about depression in children and adolescents. This final segment we now call Your Weekly Prescription it's a summary of the show, and it's brought to you by Genentech, the first biotech company in the country. Thank you, Genentech. Jennifer, what are your final messages for our listeners? Um, talk to your kids. Um, get a sense of how they're doing. Remember, bad things happen to kids, too, and they can struggle just like adults can. But even you know, even when teenagers act like they don't want you to talk to them, they do. So don't be frightened by that. Um, figuring out that a, a kid is struggling and seeing that they're struggling means you need to go get some help from that for that kid. And we have really, really good treatments now. So don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask about suicide if you're worried your kid is really sad and at risk. 
And, you know, when you find this stuff out, talk to your school, talk to your pediatrician. Um, there's a wonderful website, the American Academy of, of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, which goes by the acronym AACAP, where we have great facts for families about how to manage uh, mental health challenges in kids and adolescents. Um, get get your teenager taken care of. Uh, the unfortunate thing with depression is it often comes on in high school, which is a really important time for kids in terms of their life trajectory. So take care of them. And that's the thing. I, I think, um, as you say, adulthood or growing up is happening at a younger and a younger age. Children are aware of, they're distracted from having fun or, or just being innocent at an earlier age because of TV and access to internet. And as we say, the internet's well, not all bad, you know, it's, a, it's, but mm-hmm. it, it's, it's, and it's a gloomy yes. world for them, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm overstating it because I see teenagers all the time and they're resilient and they're having fun and they're with their friends, but you think about what they're dealing with. They're dealing with climate change. They're dealing with violence. They're dealing with the, how the adults are mm. acting in this yeah. world. But even if they're not, you know, even so if they're not thinking about climate change, they're thinking of who's having a party this weekend and will their mother let them go and all that. But I mean, even you see mm-hmm. people take young kids taking a stand. Are they doing it because they really think about it, or are they being pressured by somebody older than them? You know, all that too. Let them be kids. Let them play games. Let them go out in the street and play jumping rope. Well, you know, teenagers are, take themselves very yes, seriously, man. As they should. You want them to be their best selves. Um, yeah, and they, and they have to learn how to, you know, solve the problems of the world because they're going to be the adults yes. soon. And I think, too, um, the, the, the website that people can visit, I want to repeat that, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, AACAP.com or .org? .org? I think it's dot, mm-hmm. dot org and it's facts for families okay. is where they can get um, a lot of stuff that's written for families about mental health challenges for kids. That's a, that's our professional organization for child and adolescent psychiatry. And we do a lot of work preparing materials that ex- is accessible to families, comes in multiple languages. And I think too, there are so many ways for parents and even teachers to get involved. Are there um, groups in different cities that, that parents like nonprofits and, and um, different organizations that are helping to um, decrease the stigma of mental health and, and. Yep. Yep. Groups like the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill, NAMI, mm-hmm. which is, you know, historically focused on more severe and chronic mental illness, but, but they provide a lot of support to family members. I mean, it, what's local is local. Um, in New York City, we have something called NYC Well, where anybody can call this number, get talk to a, a triage person, and find out where the services sure. are for their kid. That's fantastic. That's mm-hmm. a, yeah, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, our services are very overloaded right now uh, with COVID. And, and, and just want to say one thing about COVID. We know now that if we had any question about why it was important for kids to go to school, we got the answer over the last two yes. years. Yes, because that sense of community, or as you say, a child or an adolescent yeah. might not tell their parents or their teacher, but they're going to mm-hmm. share with their friends. And then, you know, a friend with, uh, you know, uh, 
responsibility might mention it to a teacher or or somebody their own parent yeah and there's a lot of there's a lot of programming in schools about helping kids to help their friends and and you know the the version of if you see something say something uh so so because kids will talk to each other but also teachers see the Mm -hmm. kids and i think the other twist here jennifer i know with my own children now they're now in their 30s hallelujah we got through high school college and all but you know, oh, I'm going to John's house. So you can't, they don't call you from John's phone number. It's all cell phone. So it is harder for parents to track their kids. Well, Jen, thank you so much. Listeners can check out aacap.org or the National Alliance for Mental Illness and in New York, NYC Mm -hmm. Well. Thank you so much. We've learned so much. And I hope that our listeners um, will take advantage of the things you've shared with us. Thank you, Marianne. Really fun. Now, your real champion. Presented by the Rothman Orthopedic Institute. I know you've got the heart of a champion. And now for your real champion. I call this segment, Brothers Like No Others. If you open the dictionary and search for the word unconditional, you'll see that it's an adjective, which means not limited by conditions or absolute. Just after that, you'll see these names, Mary and Jack Finley, two people who embody unconditional love. Mary and Jack are grateful parents. As they welcomed their first five children into the world, they celebrated the gift of new life and their love flowed into each new baby. When their sixth child arrived, they learned that he had Down syndrome. At first, there was shock and the news brought about fears and tears, but buoyed by their family, friends, and faith, they embraced baby Sean and set out on the caring path of raising their child. In their younger years, that same devotion to parenthood fueled Mary and Jack to open their home to several needy mothers facing crises. Among them was one woman with a four-year-old and a six-month-old who needed help for a few days and eventually spent six months with them. When they brought baby Sean home, Their oldest child, Kathleen, was 17. They described her as a rebellious teenager of the 70s. She didn't believe in unconditional love. And she said to her parents, you only love me when I do the right thing. At school, her friend heard the news and said, ew. But once she held the new baby in her arms, she experienced a transformative moment and instantly understood the concept of love without conditions. And it began an important time of healing for the family. Later, their son Michael wrote an essay for college admission. He admitted that he based his own identity and self-esteem on his gift of intelligence and strong academic record. But once his brother Sean was born, he realized there was much more to a person than intelligence. Their daughter Maria is two years older than Sean. She always loved Sean and took him everywhere. Her mother describes her as bilingual. She speaks English and Down syndrome. When Sean would ask for something that Mary couldn't understand, Maria would say, Mom, he wants to watch the movie Wizard of Oz. Maria grew up to become a nurse and is often asked to interpret comments of patients with disabilities in speaking. The first eight years had challenges, but Mary and Jack agreed that their life with Sean was a beautiful experience and felt uniquely qualified to bring another child with Down syndrome into their family. After an active search, they adopted 12-year-old David from a group home. They looked for an older child because they didn't want Sean's position as baby of the family to be taken away. 
Sean and David attended St. Catherine's Day School, which offers special education for students ages four and a half through 21. David then attended tech school. Both men are now independently employed and work for a company that assembles boxes for kits with personal items for members of the military. Each morning, David makes the coffee and breakfast and the two men take the van to work. And when they come home, they help with housework. They love to play games with their nieces and nephews and they even act as godfathers for several of the children. Jack says, Sean and David are both such a joy and such an important part of our lives. Having a child with Down syndrome is simply another way of looking at life. With normal children, you're wrapped up in their accomplishments, trying to make sure they do well in school and athletics. With Sean and David, we don't think about where we want them to be. We just love them where they are. One night at dinner recently, Sean put his head on Jack's shoulder and said, I love you, Dad. And Jack said, you can't put a price on that. Jack continues, David has a great sense of humor. We're always playing games and his laughter is the background music of our lives. Jack looks back and says their life with Sean and David has been a beautiful experience and they can't imagine life without them in it. Sean and David are now 44 and 48 years of age. Jack and Mary say there's been so much love and we're enjoying the ride. We salute you, Jack and Mary, Sean and David Finley. Thank you for listening this evening. Listen to this show and all of our shows again on yourradiodoctor.com. Send us a story of a champion in your family, office, community. Send an email to info at yourradiodoctor.net. A special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independent Blue Cross, and support from Recovery Centers of America and Rothman Orthopedic Institute. And a big thank you to our new sponsor, Genentech. If you would like to partner with us and the show as a sponsor, send an email to info at yourradiodoctor.net. Tune in next Saturday at 5, Memorial Day weekend, gateway to the summer. Our topic will be emergency medicine, when to call the ambulance, what to expect in the emergency department, and what emergencies are more likely to happen in summer weather. Take a moment to visit redcross.org and think about donating blood during this time of critical shortage in the national blood supply. That's redcross.org. Well, May is my favorite month. Yes, it includes my birthday. So I have to remember to stop at the dry cleaners tomorrow to pick up my birthday suit. This is your radio doctor, Marianne Ritchie, wishing you a happy, healthy, safe week with the ones you love. Always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program has been paid for by Dr. Marianne Ritchie. All opinions or statements expressed on this program are solely those of Dr. Marianne Ritchie or her guests and do not reflect the opinions of WPHT or Odyssey. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. 
and all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. 